Welcome to the Theory of DFS podcast. I'm Jordan Cooper, the co-author of the Theory of Daily Fantasy Sports. It's a 15-hour audio DFS masterclass at theoryofdfs.com. Eric is still busy this week with NBA season coming back. He's doing some best ball stuff. Uh, I don't know how his NFL week went, but you could follow him on Twitter and see. So uh, with NBA coming back, I wanted to bring on uh, the GOAT. The, the greatest of all time. Maybe. Maybe the greatest of all time in NBA yeah. DFS. It's uh, Travis Petty. Petty Theft on Twitter. Petty Theft 89. Uh, and Travis, like last year you won the, the DraftKings Tournament of Champions, right? That is correct. Yeah, I won the, the NFL Showdown Tournament Champions. Right. So your, your, your specialty is NBA DFS. And you won in NFL. And you qualified via, via what? League of Legends? League, League of Legends, yeah. It's uh, it seems like forever ago since the League of Legends tournament. Now I, I haven't watched that in so long, but it was fun when it, when it lasted. But the the NBA season is coming back, so I know that uh, that you're, you're probably you're you're tweaking your stuff. I'm the type of person that uh, I'm not sure. I know Russell Westbrook's on the Lakers now, but I'm not exactly sure who's on what team anymore. I kind of like like okay, when the, the first slate comes back, I'll I'll figure it out. Uh, but that's primarily because, see, like, I don't, I don't originate my own stuff, and uh, I play a lot of, you know, cash games, especially, uh, which you despise. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're primarily GPP on all the sites, uh, and you've been, you've, you've been playing NBA DFS longer than I've even been playing DFS, right? Do you go back before 2015? Yeah, I think uh, when I looked at the CSP, it was either 13 or 14 when I first started. So what what's what's dramatically different? I mean, you have to you have to admit that DFS in 2021 is much different than it was in 2014. Do you think that the the edge that you had back then in 2014 was I mean, obviously way more just due to the fact of like like knowing who benefits when someone's out of a lineup like is was such a much more dramatic edge and i've i've also heard stories back in the day that simply knowing if someone was injured was even an edge like what what did nba dfs look like back when you first started so back i'd say 2014 2015 maybe even some 16 the edge the biggest edge back then to me was just using basketball monster you could use Basketball Monster BBM, as we all call it now, and you could basically just print off that by just doing whatever it said. You didn't really have to make too many adjustments. And back then, I used to play only cash. I was a one lineup guy. Uh, and, you know, 2017, I think, and beyond, I played only GBPs, but it didn't take much to win back then. But, you know, a lot of people say, you know, if only it was like back then, now I could be the best player ever. I could win all this money. But you got to understand that back then, there wasn't all these tools that are out now as well, though. You know what I mean? So, and, and people are a lot smarter now too, because as competition gets smarter, it makes everybody else smarter as well. These tools are better. Uh, it's a lot more clear what you need to look for now. Uh, the players were a lot less sophisticated back then, but again, it, so were the tools. So it, it, it's it's one of those things where when, when people say, if only, if only I was around in 2015, I could make all this money. It's not necessarily the case with everybody. But wouldn't you, wouldn't you back then, if we could transport back to 2014, Knowing what you know now in 2021, even if the tools weren't available, wouldn't you just make your own? I, I I would. I would, of course. But I do think I'm a much stronger player now because, you know, it 
when, when things get harder as they have in the last few years, you have to work a lot harder or else you get left behind. You know what I mean? So I, I think uh, 2021 version of myself, obviously is probably the best version of, uh, that I've been, but it wouldn't have been this way if, if it was 2015, the last six, seven years. So do, do you find that with the, the tools that are available now, either freely or via, you know, subscription or something from a lot of the major content sites, uh, do you feel like uh, a lot of the stuff that's available makes the work that you would do redundant? Or do you find that there's enough of a discrepancy between what you would originate yourself that you'd rather start from scratch? Like, what, where's where's that point where, because uh, obviously, I, I think you'd you'd agree that simply going and just just saying, oh, I'm just I'm just gonna I'm gonna aggregate all the projections, and and that's gonna be that's gonna be good enough. Now, in the low stakes, that that may still be true. But in the higher stakes that that you do play, uh, where's the point? Do you do you do you start from that point and then tweak from there, or do you still come back to like I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna you know you wake up in the morning you start doing minutes projections, and you you tweak assists and rebound rates you do all that type of stuff from you know 100 percent scratch, or do you start from since it is available? Do, do you do you find that you have more efficient uses of your time? So that that's a lot of questions. So I'll try to uh, answer. Right, but you understand what I'm you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, no, like, no, one hundred percent. Right, one hundred percent. I'm gonna start from the beginning. So does it make what I do redundant? Uh, no, it, it lessens my edge because the sites nowadays are a lot stronger than they were five, six years ago. Right, it's not even close. They're they're pretty pretty solid accuracy. So for my personal stuff, I will look at some of the sites and and, and tweak from there. Um, but I, I tweak minutes on just about everybody who's relevant and and it's pretty tedious and and i know some people think it's it's excessive amount of work but it's work for me and there are discrepancies between the sites and how i feel uh especially wild discrepancies on certain nights uh, i remember the last slate i played the playoff slate um was the DraftKings final was uh um uh, game one so it was Saturday, Sunday, or Monday, Tuesday, whatever it was. It was two days long. Um, and I found a discrepancy between what the site's general consensus was and myself of about, I think it was six, seven minutes off. So there are still big discrepancies between minutes and, and how I feel on certain guys. But for the most part, they're going to be pretty similar. Right, but when the, when there are discrepancies, that's primarily due to, you, because of your basketball knowledge and you know the coaching tendencies, that it's it's the type of thing, especially in a playoff game where, you know, you're not going to see the 12th guy on the bench. I mean, like that, those types of guys. It's more of like in this specific matchup, based on what you've seen, they're more likely to, you know, I, I use the example of like, are they going to play big? Or are they going to play small? And maybe the consensus around the yeah. industry and projections is they're going to play big. And you, you, you think they're going to play small, which means that's where the, that's where those six or seven minutes go. Uh, I mean, when other than other than that, I mean, I know I, I, I a previous podcast I asked very similar question, like if you believe the rotation is going to be the same, like there wouldn't there, would there be a reason to be that I could see it being a minute or two off uh, here and there, but I mean, are there any other just broad examples of where I mean, because even in even in the industry, I could look at one site and one site you know, thinks this and one site thinks that. And like that discrepancy could be five minutes or it could be one of those slates where 
half the Bucks are out. And it's like, who knows what this rotation is even going to look like. Do you, do you believe that that's, that's more of your edge in those scenarios? While someone like me is just kind of like taking a, like I'll end up with the average of that opinion while you take a much stronger stand with like, over time, you're going to be more right than the consensus of everyone. Yeah, I mean, the, these sites are very sophisticated. Don't get me wrong, but if there hasn't been a situation that has arisen, for example, the Bucks, if there are three starters or four top guys or whatever, the sites are not going to know what to do. So they're they're essentially just a crapshoot. You know, they get the stars in and they just throw a lot of minutes out there in whatever way and however they get them. I don't know how they get them. Um, and often those will be profitable spots. But uh, throughout the year, there's there's a lot of a lot of those kind of spots. Not just starters being out or whatnot. It is a lot of big small matchups. And you know, a lot it used to be a lot easier. This is another 2015 thing. 2015, the NBA was more you have a big out there, you put a big against the big. Now it, it teams go small versus big so often. Uh, for example, like a PJ Tucker is, is a good example. Uh, he he's, goes against bigs all the time now. That would not happen nearly as much seven years ago, six years ago, 2015. Uh, stuff like that happens a lot more now, making it a lot more difficult to figure out what's going to happen. Uh, but there are, again, there are situations like uh, you need a big to guard a big. Um, maybe guys are injured and, and the sites have too many or too little guys projected playing now. Uh, there are a lot of situations throughout the season, and I'd say there's generally one good one every two, three days that's just clearly a team is off. So, so you, so, so when you, when you, when you start your process, are you, do you start from seeing where the sites are and then tweaking from there, or did you get to that point before? Like, is it like to me, I would find it much more efficient to like look look at certain sources and then go, I disagree. I'm going to change this guy five, that guy up five, rather than just start from, do you start from zero, get to that point and then compare? No, no, no. I, so I do, you, I do, you, you I do, do a baseline. Do the more efficient way. I do a baseline. I do a baseline. Right. And from there, I generally look at the most owned guys and, and start from there because the most owned guys are generally going to be the ones that make or break you, you know, there's a lot of theories in DFS, like, you know, they've got the contrarian guys who think all chalk is bad. you got the chalky guys who think don't get anything contrarian is, is just you're losing value. But uh, to me, there, there's good and bad chalk, especially in NBA. You know, uh, a good chalk would be somebody who's getting put into a big situation all of a sudden that, you know, guys are injured, right? The Bucks are all injured. All of a sudden, somebody's going to have to take the usage up on the Bucks. That would be a good chalk. A bad chalk would be probably chasing somebody who's had a few good games in a row, shot well. And maybe maybe a bench guy. There's a lot of a lot of those throughout the season. So like like the, those Wayne Ellington types, right? Comes off the bench, goes eight for eleven, you know, two games in a row, and it's like, well, he got there in 22 minutes. So like, like yeah, like, should should exactly. you be paying 4,800 for that guy on a on a nine game slate? The best the best guy I can think of that that has historically been this guy would be like a, a Lou Williams of two or three years ago. I remember at one point. Uh, Lou Williams being on the Clippers, every single game, I feel like for a three to five game stretch, their stars would get crushed at the beginning. Lou Williams would come in, destroy, and then, you know, th third quarter, come back around. Lou Williams obviously be crushing. He'd be at 15 minutes, whatever. Th third quarter, same exact thing happened. Stars get destroyed again. Backups come with Harold and Lou, and they would just smash again. This happened over and over and over and over. And, I, and Lou and, and Montrez together, Montrez will just got to a crazy, crazy ownership. Obviously, they broke eventually, but like they just they, for like a week straight, it felt like they crushed me. 
Do you do you think that uh, uh, an edge, I mean, you could call it an edge, in 2021 still is, I, I only say this because of my experience, you know, in the Roto-Grinders Discord, that people overvalue, they still do this. I mean, they probably did this back in 2015 also, because I didn't start playing NBA until like late 2017, that they overvalue like who's in the starting lineup rather than who's going to get the minutes. Because I mean, like I, 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 Travis, I could tell you like in, in the NBA discord, like this nearly happens like every slate where like pe everyone's projecting X player to start, right? We Like it's one of those things where we don't know. And then we'll see the starting lineup like 15 minutes before, you know, that game locks. Like the Celtics or something with like like last year with like Teague or Pritchard. I mean like that where like it's quite possible that the guy that doesn't start is actually the one that's gonna play twenty eight minutes. And the starter is there, it's like starter in name only. And what happens a lot of times is that the project like like projections are correct, and then you go, Well, that guy's not starting. Uh do I take him out of my lineup? And I go, No, he's gonna still he's gonna play twenty eight minutes and he's actually gonna play a lot more of his minutes against uh, the second team defensively. And he's also going to be higher usage because he doesn't have X and Y on the court with him. But people still react to these starting lineups as if like, well, now that, now that the guy's starting, then I could take his, I could take his 26% usage from the second team and superimpose it on, on the, on the starters even though, like, he's probably going to be the third option. Do you, do, you, do you still think, even though, even though a lot of times projections around the industry take that into account, that a lot of, maybe in, probably in the lower stakes, they're more likely to overvalue that, like, that starting lineup. And then they get kind of, like, confused that, like, at the end of the second half, it's like, well, where did that guy go? It's like, well, that guy was never going to close. Like, just because he started. I mean, we saw that with the... I mean, obviously, the classic is the Warriors center all the time, right? Like, Zaza would start. Like, like he's not playing yeah. more than 12 minutes. I mean, don't worry about that. Uh, do you, do you th still think that that happens enough that... I mean, to me, I don't think you have to... Like, I'm not a, I'm not a big basketball person, but, like, as long as you notice, like, just the bare basics of rotations... Like, do you need to have that drastic of a basketball knowledge to be aware of those certain situations? It's not that difficult to figure out, but you do need some sort of knowledge to figure out the situations. It's very team and player specific. So for the Teague and, and Pritchard example, I don't know if you even said, did you say Pritchard? I yeah, that's I, I, I was just I'm trying to come up with some type of situation. Yeah, Pritchard where there would was, be the guy. Right, when Kemba would be out and there would be something like that. So the... When you think about ceilings, the Teague versus Pritchard, that's a good, that's a pretty good uh, example of it. You got, once you got the Teague side, which is the minutes upside, he's starting. If he finishes the game, he's got minutes upside that Pritchard just doesn't have. As simple as that. When you start, you have more upside. And then you have the other side, which is like the PPM upside, the points per minute upside, which is Pritchard. He's playing with worse players on uh, when he's in the court. He's going to do more, theoretically. So personally, I know, uh, I think most people actually would, prefer the points per minute side than the minute side when they're playing guys. That's what I've noticed. I am more of, I'm more the minutes guy myself, but that's one that I, I struggle over a lot. I think it's really dependent on the team and the players involved, but that that's always a tough one. The minutes or, or the point uh, points per minute, which, which side do you want? But again, I, I'm more the minute side. 
I tend to I tend to be more obviously in cash. I'm more of the minute side, but on in tournaments, I'm more of the PPM side. I think of it logically, like there's no right answer to this, but I think of it logically from a a guy with a high PPM could walk into more minutes, but it's much harder for a guy with a lot of minutes to walk into more PPM. If you understand, like we have the the Tony Snell playing 38 minutes. I mean, like great, like what. What when what situation does like he gets hot? You know, hot hand, and they start. You know, they 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 get a heat check or something. But I just feel like like the guy that's projected for twenty two minutes. That if he's if he gets thirty four, he breaks the slate at forty four hundred, is much more valuable to me than a guy that's that like oh he's like how much more minutes can you play? Like if he's gonna play thirty six and be the fourth option on the team, like. I, I just I just feel that there are more paths with foul trouble with game state because obviously you know depend if they're down by twenty up by twenty you know stuff like that uh, that there's obviously there's more variance but I think yeah. is, isn't that isn't that what we're looking for especially like in larger field tournaments yeah so I I, I agree with you for the most part there like again going back to the Pritchard T example because I think that's that you know, that's where we started I don't think Pritchard really has you know, a way to get to 34 minutes, something like that. I really, I really don't believe that, especially in last year's scenarios. Uh, I will say that I chose T against Pritchard. I said that for almost always in the scenario last year, and I was wrong a lot. So it's possible that I got this one wrong and that Pritchard was the guy to go. But I think I, I still always prefer the minutes. It, it, maybe it's my my cash background from 2015 still, still hitting me. But uh, you are right. You are right in that. The PPM should be theoretically better for ceilings, but at the same time, if they do get 34 minutes, which I don't agree with that with Pritchard, but it can happen in certain scenarios for other guys, their PPM is going to go down as well, right? Because if they're playing 34 minutes, they are going to overlap the starters a lot more than they would if they're playing, say, 22. Right, but it also depends on the position. I mean, we're talking about very nuanced situations of, uh, you know, if they if they're if if they're in, they end up being more. I mean, we get the Bobby Portis type of situation, right? Mm-hmm. Like Bobby Portis when he was on the Bulls, like a lot of times, you know, he would be the you know forty two hundred, and it's like, well, he's playing like twenty minutes off the bench, but like if marketing gets into foul trouble, if they just de- if if they decide to run with him because they don't want to play, you know, Wendell Carter or like whoever's in the center spot, like there's there's more paths for that than you know playing uh, Justin Holiday. You know, off the bench, it's like, you know, oh, if they play three guard lineups, maybe he plays 32 minutes. It's like, yeah, but he's like 0.68 PPM at the same price that like I for cash games, I get. I mean, I agree. I mean, that's why that's why you said it's like your cash game mindset is take the minutes, not the PPM. And that's where I would side in cash games. But but there's no correct answer. I mean, like we're de- we're debating stuff that in a on a generalized level, there's no correct answer. There may be a correct answer, in on on Wednesday's slate, right? I mean, like they may be on a specific thing, and then you know it could be the best players in the world on a, on a situation like that may be right seventy thirty, right? Yeah. Yet an average player yeah. may only be right fifty fifty. So like to me, like that's. That's where that lies. It's not one of those things where you're always going to be right or always going to be wrong. But that, that, that was a very good example. The Portis one's a very good example, too, because whereas Teague and Pritchard, they're both point guards. Point guards don't foul as much either. With centers and bigs in general, they a backup big would be more likely to benefit from foul trouble or whatnot. Plus, 
they're generally going to be higher points per minute than say like a wing as well or something like that, which is, you know, the Justin holidays of the world. But that kind of goes back to the, the previous example where, uh, where I was saying guys will, will play hot hand, especially bench guys that overrate them. Like Portis is, it gets that guy, is that guy many times a year uh, where he has a couple of games in a row. Everybody thinks all of a sudden he's like some superstar. But if you can get the if you get Portis before he gets the hot hand and you catch that first hot hand game at a low ownership, that's where you really start making some serious money with ceiling guys like that. Right. I mean, and, but that's but that, that's a that's a tournament strategy. I mean, th- these are things yep. you don't necessarily rely on in cash games. No. Uh, do you do you believe? I mean, I may, maybe I'm the one that's wrong. That I'm I'm going I'm going by like you know this this is a lot of this episode is for people that may have played NFL may have played MLB maybe you never played NBA or just only playing casually. Another thing that gets asked a little too much uh, of me in uh, in Discord DMs uh, on a slate is is the, is the blowout stuff. Like two 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 things about blowouts. So here are the two questions for you. One, do you necessarily predict blowouts? Because my my opinion on blowouts is that a lot of times people don't play guys that are oh they're never going to get fourth quarter run and their ownership goes down so it makes it more relevant to play them and hope the game stays close and number two uh, do you do you I don't want to say ever because you probably do in certain scenarios uh, uh, you know how often I get asked who plays in a blowout who play like like people are trying to play these thirty two hundred dollar guys. That's like, oh yeah, the 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 Lakers are gonna blow out the whatever. I'm gonna play uh, 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 Horton Tucker, who we only have projected for 14 minutes, but like he may get the entire fourth quarter in a blowout. And I always respond back, it's like, well, you have to hit three times then. Like number one, the game has to blow out. Number two, Horton Tucker has to get more minutes than 14. And then number three, he has to get 30 points, fantasy points in that in that time period. That like the probability of that happening, maybe you try it on a two or three game slate because how many options are there? You get a guy at two percent owned, but people are asking this on a nine game slate, and I go, go, why, 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 why are you playing? Why are you playing three K guys just in case there's a blowout? And in the worst best case scenario, maybe he gets twenty points and he still doesn't win you a GPP. So like, I mean, I'm 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 selling the case, but maybe maybe there's a different case. Maybe there there is a case where where you are playing kind of like the ninth guy off the bench in those scenarios. But I mean, looking at the lineups that I've studied through results DB, uh, I, I think you're on my side. Yeah. I, I'm not playing the ninth guy, uh, come or ninth guy in general. I guess not ninth guy at the bench, especially not the ninth guy at the bench. Uh, it's just, it, the upside just not there. If you're on, let's say even like a five game, slate, you're going to tell me you can't find somebody with a bigger upside at a smaller price point than that. You're going to find several guys. I do predict I do project blowouts, but you will very very rarely find me on on somebody who I'm projecting to play at the end of the game in a blowout. Uh, if that makes sense, like the Horton Tuckers, you'll never find me on a guy like Horton Tucker in the spots last year. If you looked back and, and saw the times he was owned, I was I don't think I was ever on him because it, in the end, blowout is is important to us in the NBA, but it's not everything. Uh, if Lakers are up 20 points with nine minutes to go. Maybe the maybe the empty the bench in maybe and those nine minutes are valuable. But if the guy is only getting twenty minutes, like how great could this guy possibly be? And that's his upside minutes. That's that's just not very good. Uh, and how, that, about for, uh, how about for the starters uh, though? How about so if you if you factor in blowouts potential into your into your projections, uh, 
is it more likely that this is something that uh, that even even notorious? I mean, I remember reading his stuff in 2017 when I start when I had to learn how to play that like well if a team's favored by 18 points and you're scared of a blowout like dude the favored team Giannis could still get 70 points in 30 minutes in 28 minutes that let it be more likely that you're still on the the favored side but it may just be that you're less on the underdog side is that is is kind of is do you factor it more like that when it comes to blowouts yeah so that actually reminds me of one of the biggest differences between 2015 and now 2015 especially on bbm uh blowouts would not be factored in well enough for starters they would have starters playing normalish minutes even in big blowouts. Uh, i was telling this to somebody recently and, and i don't mind saying it this is so long ago Condi is one of his Condi's biggest flaws in cash games was that he would overplay the Warriors in their championship season when they're blowing everybody out. So he would have, I think, oftentimes two Warriors in the starting lineup and they just wouldn't get the minutes. And and because BBM would overrate these guys and then he would get wrecked in cash games once you know the pros started figuring that out. Uh, now I think it's kind of the flip side where people are underrating starters in these blowout games. So I see these sites now, I, I see, you know. Giannis getting 28, 29 minutes in a blowout game, which I think for the most part is not too far off. But if this game does end up close, his upside is closer to 34, 35 minutes. And that's a huge difference. And yes, I get his, his average minutes is going to be very close to the website. And that's what the websites are for, right? These, these big websites, they, they, they get average minutes. They don't, they don't do ceiling minutes. At least I, I've never used something off that from the websites. They use the average minutes. So when someone like Giannis has a huge volatility in these these moments, and yeah, you're gonna look stupid a lot when Giannis say mega blood, 26 minutes, two ppm, he's crushing it, right? He's only gets 52 points, so you're gonna look stupid. But when you're right, and there were times last year when there were blood spreads, and he got 80 plus points. I I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I know there was at least two. Right? No, I re- I remember I remember one specifically. His like I think he only played 24 minutes, and he still got like 70 something points. Because he had like a triple double, and he was like he was just the man for three quarters, and yeah. and people didn't and, and people didn't play him. Yeah, I think there was one against the Bulls. I, I'm speaking more less of, of like a, a point per minute smash and more of like a minute smash. And and I know if his minutes are higher, it's more likely his points per minutes are not smashing because if he's smashing, the team is probably doing well, and, and as a blowout spread, they're probably going to surpass that. But I'm talking about like a pure minute spot. I think there was I want to say there was one against the Bulls. I can't remember exactly, but like. If he gets 34, 35 minutes against these bad teams, and he just hears near his average point per minute, which he should be able to do even when he's not playing well against a bad defensive team, like he's going to smash. And I, I noticed he's not as owned. If this was six years ago, Giannis would be owned so much more than he is these days. I think it's gone too far the other way. Uh, when it, since we're talking about blowouts, which means we, we concern ourselves with both sides, uh, if you mathematically look at the correlations between players – like NBA is the sport that has the least amount of correlation uh, where people I think go wrong or, or overweight is like, because people think in terms of I'm coming from NFL, right? Quarterback, wide receiver, right? I'm running it back with someone on the other side or they do MLB, especially right. MLB, I'm taking five guys from a team, you know, like that type of stuff uh, in NBA. Like people are looking at, I mean, I've seen correlation matrices for NBA, and I look at that and I go, I hope people are using that because that means nothing. Like, like the assist, like because NBA is so like linear, right? I mean, like there's no events. Like, like 
the 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 fact that that uh, a guy assists another guy on a basket when it, it only relate it's only correlated by so much and it only gets you an extra what one point in total and you're going to score 350 400 in your lineup on the slate that the value of that type of assist to bucket type of correlation oh or, or people say oh this the guy on the other side is going to shoot bricks Carmelo Anthony is going to shoot so many bricks that there's going to be tons of rebounds it's like like yeah I guess you're right. There is some, you're right. There's some correlation, but to, to, to base your entire lineups based on it seems kind of foolish for what it is. But the minutes on both sides of a game, as far as like the starters are concerned, are correlated to each other very much. That like, even though, you know, you can't predict if like one guy on the game crushes, another guy on the other side of the game crushes. But do you believe that, 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 type of correlation where especially the studs where like if you're going to pay 10-2 for someone like they better play 37 minutes that are you more likely than not to play a guy from the other side of the game that correlates minutes wise as long as obviously price and projection makes it reasonable enough to do so because it's something that I do in my lineups but I've always been concerned especially seeing a lot of sharp players, especially in large field lineups, sometimes have lineups that like I could have just never made because I would have never played like these two guys together or these, you know, I would have I would have ended up playing the guy on the other side of the game instead. Uh, do you do you find value in any of this type of stuff or uh, do you think I, I, I may be just overvaluing it or is there some like middle between them? I would say it's probably middle. I have never ever forced a correlation stack or, or any sort of game stack in my life. It's just not the way I play. Um, there are correlations I could see working out. Um, maybe not same team, maybe not same team in terms of like, like a, a point guard and like a, a shooter. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's that big of a deal, but I think minutes wise, you could find some correlations that would, that would work out and be beneficial. But that, but there's definitely negative correlation. Oh Yeah. Oh yeah, the, I mean the obvious ones would be like um, two superstars on the same team will generally be negatively correlated, even though their minutes are positively correlated, because they both need to do so much per minute. Whereas if one guy's going off, the other guy's unlikely to be doing as much. Right, uh, uncorrelated to negatively correlated to ceiling. We're talking about here, not necessarily median. Correct, correct. Right, and negatively also, correlated to each other. Right, right. That's what I mean. The ceilings yeah. correlated to each other. Same thing for the center and the backup center. Right. I mean, like, like they're yeah, yeah. they're not. They're negatively correlated. So like very I think, negatively correlated. Right. So in basketball, I think it's more you're more inclined to value getting negative correlation out of your lineups than adding positive correlation to your lineups. But like you said, forcing correlation when it's very small is probably not worth it. So like some tools around the industry have like boosts. So instead of hard coding, like, oh, if you're going to play, if I'm, I'm trying to remember, you know, just, uh, if you're going to, if you're going to play, people have changed teams so much. I don't know. If you're going to play Embiid on one side, you're going to play, uh, you're going to play Jalen Brown on the other side, you know, like in a Celtics, uh, Sixers game, uh, you could make it so that if Embiid's in the lineup, boost up Jalen Brown's projection by right. 10%, like something where he's more often, he could end up in your lineup, but you don't end up with 150 set and every single Embiid lineup. You have 16 Embiid lineups 
and they're all they all have Jalen Brown, and it turns out Jason Tatum goes off, and like like you're locked out of that combination because you forced it in, but you sound like you don't even do like any type of correlation boosting at all. I don't. If there was, if I had to name one spot where maybe I would think it's interesting, would probably be like a, a big, big spread game, right? Like a Giannis versus bad team where like, you know, if the bad team guy does well, then, then maybe I want Giannis in lineup too, because the game's going to be close. I mean, that's, that's what I think of, but I, I tend to, you know, it, it, in certain tools, you don't have the option to do that. So sometimes I, sometimes I end up forcing it in and I don't, and I know that's, yeah. I know that's the wrong way to do it uh, because you're not guaranteed anything. But a lot of times what I'll do is I'll make a group of multiple. So like in that scenario where it's uh, the Bucks versus the Grizzlies or something and the spreads, you know, 14, I'll go like, well, if I have John Morant in the lineup, let me play Giannis in the line. Like if I have John Morant or Dylan Brooks and, 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 uh, and whoever, and who was on it? Jaron Jackson or something like that. You know, you know, those lineups like play, play, play Giannis or Middleton. I make a group of that. So it's like, as long as there's one Grizzly, give me one buck type of yeah, lineup, but well, not necessarily. Exactly. The Right. And that's a minutes correlation too, but I mean, that's the same thing kind of we were talking about before. It's just, it's a minutes correlation. You know, both guys are probably under projected on minutes versus ceiling. And that's the kind of spot you could, you could potentially get a big game out of both of them compared to what the industry thinks. Right. But I do see sharper players, uh, lineups that also have like what I would consider negative ish ish correlations where, where like they're playing like three guys from the same side that like, from a, from a shots perspective, like a lot of times, uh, like I view those, those, the shooting dependent types as like the one-off play. Like I, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe you tell me, but it makes some intuitive sense that like, like if Clay Thompson is like for the old the Warriors teams, if Clay Thompson is, is, is going nuclear, like why, why do I have Steph Curry in that lineup? Like, I mean, like Clay Thompson is taking the same shots that Curry would at the three point line, so if anything, it's coming out of a Steph Curry's ninety six hundred. Like if Clay Thompson's sixty four, like I'm less likely to play them together. But obviously, but sometimes I see lineups that, like, they're both you know Curry Curry gets enough, and you know it, Durant gets enough. I'm mean, obviously using the old Warriors example because I think it's the best example that type of team, uh, where where some sometimes. Sometimes that guy still gets there, that that hot shooter, three-pointer type. But am I wrong that, like, it, it makes sense to me that they're the ones that take the most away from other players from the team. Yeah, I, I don't think that's 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 wrong. Um, I mean, I, I, I will play same team guys, but it's mainly more price and, and minutes driven than, than point per minute, I, you know, or correlation driven. It's not, I'm not trying to put these guys in the same team intentionally. But uh, yeah, two scores would be like the most obvious one where kind of like Harden, Westbrook are playing two playmakers, like Clay, Durant, and 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 Curry, where it's gonna be tougher, especially all three of them, and, and let alone two of them. I think two of them could get there in that team because that team was just insanely good. But to have all, if you had all three in your lap, I think you'd be having a lot of issues and and and, and problems with with putting all three in there. Right, but you mentioned it's all relation to price. Like if Clay Thompson was forty eight hundred and Steph Curry seventy two hundred, it's like. I'm just jamming them into every lineup at that point. I mean, really, it's it's a it's more of a price thing because 
I'll see I'll see winning lineups that have the center and the backup center in. Right? I mean, sometimes sometimes you do see that, but it's a lot yeah. of time. That's, that's a I mean, then they both get I, there. I, I, I remember uh, I'm not gonna name the person, but I remember one guy in particular won 100 k off of uh having uh I think it was like Drummond and Pachulia or something like that back in Detroit or Drummond and some backup center, and it was it's not a good play. If you have both those guys, you literally are, are going as negatively correlated as possible. But what? But the price. But I mean, what? But I mean, I don't know the situation. Is there? There has to be a situation where the the players are are. I mean, we've seen it with the with the Sixers when Embiid is out. So like in cash games last year, a lot of times like you're playing like Tony Bradley and 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 Dwight Howard, and they're both priced at thirty two hundred, and it's yeah. like they're never going to be on the court together. But they could both get twenty five to thirty. They both could get there for their price at three thousand. That obviously in cash games, I don't care about the negative correlation. I just want all the center minutes for the Sixers. But there has to be a level of price where the negative correlation doesn't. It's even with the negative correlation, it still means you could play the players together. So that that's actually a really good example of. I think I I would bet that I have definitely played both of them at one point last year together in the same lineup. But here is the issue. In hindsight, it's very easy with this one. Um, one, if we saw them play kind of hot hand last year with Philadelphia, where I remember the, I think the very first game they played together, uh, Bradley ended up taking the, the majority of minutes, I want to say. I don't think it was necessarily due to foul trouble. I don't remember the exact specifics, but Bradley did well. I don't think Howard did very well. And on top of that, I believe that they played small ball center, too, with either S- Simmons or Harris. Or Mike I Scott. Mike might have I think Mike Scott. I think Scott might have been out. Yeah, I think he might have been out. either he was either he did the first game or and he was out the second game or he was there was some I remember something was bizarre about it where uh, one of the games because there's a lot of situations this season with this this combination where I remember Mike Scott was out and I was like okay this this has to solidify them as two center but it didn't they went Simmons at center I remember they got crushed early on it's funny how these things come back to me when when I start thinking about when you when you bring it up uh, but they didn't play 48 minutes regardless I don't think in any game did they go full 48 minutes of center which is a huge problem. Because the industry was projecting 48 minutes of center, which I, I did too initially. It makes a lot of sense. And when they don't hit that and they're going to be chalky because, again, they're cheap, they're high PPM, it's a problem. On top of that, you're getting backup player point-per-minute projections on the industry, but they're not backup players anymore. They're playing with with starters. And when you're going from rebounding with guys like Shake Milton or Ty, uh, Tyrese Maxey and and Mike Scott, backup guys, too, you're, you're contending for rebounds with Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris. Uh, you're going to lose rebounds as well. And, 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 it is, and, and there's a lot of stuff that's going to trickle down. Your, your usage will go down, likely. Um, that's not 100% true because, you know, the usage weren't big regardless of more garbage men. Garbage men don't get affected as much by usage drops. But uh, the rebounds will go down. Uh, the assists probably should go down because they shouldn't have the ball at all in their hands when they're playing starters. So there's a lot of issues with the Philadelphia projections in hindsight, which is easy to say, though, again, with hindsight. Right. But I mean, these are the things that you could adjust as you see them happen. Yes. And that's why personally I do better. My results like December and on, especially like December to February, are leaps and bounds better than before or after that part of the season. I think it's because I have a little bit of I have a little bit of, uh, you know, say 20 games or so to, to go with. I can kind of see situations and how they play out. Uh, as you know, and then obviously the end season things kind of go to shit and they just go their own way. Everybody plays. Uh, but I'm the opposite of you. I tend to do better in the beginning of the season, but my play style is geared around like the more uncertainty there is, 
the more that I do better in GPP because like I'm not, you're you're trying to gather data so you could better project everyone than the industry, which there obviously there's an edge there. And especially in higher stakes where that there there are there are only small edges to begin with. In the beginning of the seat, like I've always I'm I'm always the you know the the game theory driven approach of like no one knows shit. And uh I I just want to find the high variance situations. As long as I can identify like what you're talking about, I don't care which side is right. I don't care about getting that right. I just care about being on the other side of the consensus. And especially in the beginning of the season, you know, first two months of the season where, you know, you, you're not as confident in what you know, but the industry isn't either. And I'm much more likely to just like, it. I'm much more likely to, to fade those chalky situations. I'm going to say fade. It doesn't mean playing zero lineups, but just in general, be under on those situations. Find the negatively correlated guys to those guys. Right. Oh, everyone thinks this. It's like, well, I'm just going to play a little bit more of this guy because I think that's way too overboard. So would, of course, using that approach uh, involves like much more, much more thinking about the game aspects of DFS than the basketball. But would you, for, for a newer player that has been playing an NFL or an MLB, other sports, uh, I mean, you would, you would have to admit that like, the industry, the projections around the industry, no matter what site you use, is still better than nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not close. I mean, and, and maybe there's something to be said. I, I think you kind of didn't necessarily agree with this assessment, but uh, maybe there's something to be said about how my intuition early season is not quite as strong as these websites. Because if, if I'm losing and, and, and the people who are using projections are, are doing better than me, then maybe my, my intuition just is, is, is not good up early in the season. And I don't know if you're more projections based. You said you kind of go against projections, sound like though. So maybe I'm wrong there. But maybe my my assessment will be the projections are, are stronger than I am early in the season. Or it could just be just be variance. I mean, still we're still talking about very small sample sizes. Yeah, but it's been seasons long where this trend has been pretty clear. So uh, maybe maybe I'm just doing something very wrong in the beginning of the season. Otherwise, I don't know. Or you just or or maybe just too overconfident. Maybe it's you have to lower your confidence a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, and I know, I know, I know some of the mistakes I make. I, I make a lot of intuitive mistakes in the beginning of the season, uh, especially around usage rates. But I, I think, especially given last year, I started very poorly, and I kind of looked back at it, and I saw some of the mistakes. Mistakes I did. A lot of were were kind of figuring out who has the ball in their hands intuitively, especially in spots where, say, the lead ball handler is out. But still, it comes it comes down to the the basketball side. So, like you lean the, the the main difference between me and you is that you lean more towards knowing basketball to get an edge on the industry. And I I'm I'm my edge is in lineup construction and leverage and all the like the game aspects. And I'm just assuming everything is efficient. And depending on the stakes that you play in the contest that you play, there's still enough, uh, there's still enough negative EV players that like, like I, I mean, if you're playing the, the high stakes stuff, Travis, I mean, my approach doesn't necessarily fly as much because like, I don't know what the efficient number is to begin with. So to know when the field is off on a field of very sharp players is going to be, is, I'm not going to be correct often enough. But in the low stakes, when I mean, dude, I mean, we we've seen slates, right? When you play the 
whatever the large field on FanDuel or the large field on, you know, the lower stake, you know, a single digit, eight, the $8 or whatever the hell, a return to the court, $5 that, you know, a guy that should be like, that is stepping into like a 12x median on their salary is mm. like 78% owned when they should be like 97% owned. Like, like to me that like, like the, you, the rake is paid, but you don't see, yeah. you, you know, but you don't see that in the 1500, $3,000 $3, contest. Like if the guy is supposed to be 97% owned, he's probably going to be 97% owned. Yeah. I mean, th that's, I think that's why I've done nearly as well in high stakes as low stakes is I think there's a lot more guys like you were strong line construction, smart guys, but they don't really dive into the, the more intuitive side of NBA. Right. And I think that's where I'm able to get different in the high stakes still is that I have a very different approach from all the other guys. There's, there's a lot of guys like you in high stakes, very smart guys, good line construction and whatnot, but because they play so similar, it kind of hurts their EV. And the more guys that play similar, even if they're all very smart guys, the better for someone like me when I can find that one guy that none of these projection sites are going to see. Uh, and it's going to end up, and if my guy does what I hope he does, the ceiling, I'm going to I'm gonna crush. Do you think a good, good word of advice on playing contrarian? I'm talking more about low stakes. I'm talking about more for newer players that maybe play DFS well, but maybe have not played NBA. That's what I want to gear this around. Uh, I've described it as uh, people generally at the lower stakes overweight, uh, I don't want to call them narratives, but matchup-based metrics, you know, DVP type of stuff in a game, especially now in basketball, where what what are positions in basketball now in comparison to like 1988? Uh, yeah. That, like I tell people, if you, if, if you want to know how I play, it's like play good players that no one's playing. But don't care, like, yeah, I've won the most off of, like, playing the guy that's going to be in the blowout that no one wants to play. That, and I'll, I'll play that guy at 4%. Or everyone everyone is playing, uh, you know, Embiid or Drummond at center, and I'm and I'm playing, uh, you know, I'm paying down for Jonas Valanciunas. Or I'm, uh, everyone's playing, playing, playing Harden as their payup option. Or... Uh, Durant is their payup option, and I'm playing Bradley Beal in a game that 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 he's 9,500. It's uh, okay, whatever, and he's like, well, he's four percent owned. I'm like, but I'm not. I'm not looking. I'm not going to try to find the 4K guy that you know. It's like, what third guard on a team? What sixth man on a team? It's like, especially on these nine, ten game slates, there are actually good players that are single digit owned that. If they put up 70 fantasy points, you wouldn't be shocked. And you'd be like, well, why weren't we playing them? It's like, well, they projected four points median lower than all these other guys, but their yeah. ceilings are still 60, 70 points. And people are scared to play because of some matchup. They're on a back-to-back -back or, you know, something like that. And do you think a, a, simp a simple way without knowing, without knowing the nuances of the NBA is that, like, Build your build your best lineup that you can based on the projections, and then go like, well, how can I get a star or two, a stud or two that is single that is projected to be single digit owned, as long as they're not like like obviously there are times that you know because an injured guy is back, like this guy is seventy two hundred when he should be forty eight hundred because like Giannis is back and Middleton shouldn't be ten yeah. k anymore, uh, 
But in a lot of situations, it's just like, well, if everyone's playing Embiid, why don't you play Gobert? Like, like Embiid's going to be 38% owned. Gobert's going to be 4% owned. Like, like, just simply thinking that way could get you contrarian enough while not having to, you know, spend an hour on trying to find, like, weird lineups that do, that, like, just, like, like one or two things like that, even in large field GPPs, can mean the difference between coming in, you know, to 500th place and winning the whole thing. So that I'll break this into two parts. I'll do, I'll do the DVP first and then the price related stuff. So DVP is pretty darn correlated to like the other team's defensive skill. And DVP by all these projection sites is already factored in. So if you look at DVP on top of using the projection sites, you're essentially double factoring it in. If you go, if you go against, oh, this guy, this team has a horrible DVP against the position. Well, guess what? This guy's probably getting more chalky. Everybody sees the same exact thing you see. There are less correlated um, stats that you can look at for DVP than like scoring, for example, that you could find some weird ones on uh, like some, like, like, I guess maybe you see something versus a slower team. Maybe they get blocked a lot or something where you're centering more, but these are more advanced things where like, I would not recommend looking into it for a beginning player because you'll get caught in noise 95% of the time. But there are some, some smaller ones that are interesting. Uh, so DVP, I don't think is that important. Because again, if you, if the guy's a good DVP and you think, oh, that's reason playing, he's probably already going to be played for the same reason. You're just double factoring it in. Now for price, um, me personally, I, I play very, very heavily a price style. Whereas if a guy is obviously too cheap and he's going to be chalk because of it, I don't mind eating someone like that. I will, I will be fine. I, my style, I'm okay with eating guys like that because I know I get contrary enough beyond that where I can do that. Uh, I think in basketball, more than other sports, you don't want to play a guy who's clearly too expensive too often. Because I know in other sports like football, if you play a guy who's too expensive, he'll be lower owned. And like in football, especially or baseball, the more volatile uh, projection or not projection, more volatile actual result sports, like it's not that bad to take a guy who's overpriced. In basketball, I'm a little more hesitant to do that, to take, say, if, 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 what was it? you said Beal and Embiid? If, if right, Embiid but I'm, I'm not. Is, but I'm is, not talking Travis about the times where they're clearly overpriced. I'm, it's more of those things where there's six guys in the 8K range, and like one or two are going to be double digit owned because they they have a two point higher projection than the other six, you know, five players in that range. And the only reason they have a two point higher projection is because they're going up against a weaker defensive team, or like it. It's more of a mat. Like that two points can be accounted for in matchup. Yet yeah. the other, you know, Zach Levine, you know, oh yeah, it's not the greatest of matchups, but like, dude, you could put, he could put up, he could put up 65 fantasy points and he's going to be 4% owned as opposed to the other guys that are going to be 22% owned. Like I'm not talking well, about can... drastic ones where there's six points off in projection. No, no, no. I, no, I completely understand. But, but personally myself, I will generally play the cheap guy who's more obvious, the higher owned guy, because I know I could get away with it with my other seven spots I, I i will i know i have these guys that nobody else really sees these sub five percent guys that i can get away with playing the i, I could take the value and get the ownership lowered somewhere else right uh, i know most but, players, but those are the values guys guys. i'm talking about this i'm talking about the expense i'm not talking about the 4k guys i'm talking so you're, you're telling me that like if beal and in, in this example let's say i uh, beal is 8800 and you think he's overpriced by 400 like is that yeah. dramatic like Oh, well, I'm just gonna go with the eighty-four hundred dollar guy. Like, I'm yeah, not talking I, about like the four K range where, 
Like, it's very rare that, like, oh, I'm going to take the $3,600 guy instead of the $4,000 guy. I'm really just talking about, like, this. we have slates where all the studs are fairly kind of equal, like stud yeah. studs, like the 10K plus guys. But one just happens just for whatever reason, you know, because of one point in projection, one guy is 36% owned on a five-game slate and one guy is 11% owned because of some matchup factor that is already accounted for with the one point. Like, to me, that drastic difference of, you know, 12 to 36 for only one point in median, like, to me, that's the exploitable thing. But, like, yeah, would you give up if, if they were eight-point projected difference? No. I mean, so but, you're gonna, but you're going to find that more at the at the high-salary positions, not not the value, the 4 or 5K type of positions. When I said value, I meant, like, their projection value. So the one okay, point, okay. Uh, my, when I say value, I meant like the one point difference is the value. I, I still, so 12, 36 is, is obviously a huge difference. And I, I don't think one, one point value is going to account for that. I, I think it's going to be a lot closer than that, but uh, I don't, I don't really play. I don't play an ownership style in, in, in DFS. I, I play a very projection based style. And it just so happens that a lot of my projections are off in the industry. Whereas I end up naturally with low owned guys unintentionally. Uh, I don't have to adjust for ownership to get low owned guys. So because of that, I can eat some of the higher owned guys who gain, say, gain the one percent or whatever, you know, of of projection value. I, I can eat those guys and be okay with it. Now, I would recommend that for most people, but but it works for me because again, I, I'm able to naturally get low owned guys that I think have good projection value regardless. Now, but do you look? What happens in the case? I'm going to give you an example of example. I mean, because there's going to be a slate every day. What happens if you do your projections and they're very close to the to the to the around the industry? It's like, well, now you're not not naturally going to get lower owned guys because it's like you don't have a specific nuance take or something that's different. I mean, do you get into those situations, or you typically find on a night to night basis that you're even slightly more different enough that you don't have to worry about you know leveraging ownership? But maybe there are slates where it's like, nope, I think everyone around the industry pretty much got it, got it good. Are those, are those the days where either one, you then look into, you know, the game theory concepts or number two, you just lower your volume because it's like, I don't have, I don't have as much of an edge. And on the days where you're vastly different, are those the days where you're like, okay, then maybe I put in some more entries into the, you know, whatever, 777 or whatever high stakes or, you know, you just play more. No, well, that's a funny question because, I know personally, I, I max everything. I never take action off, even though there's some days where it's it's 4 p.m., which is my lock time here West Coast. And I'm like, I don't really think that there's this is a great slate. I, you know, we're in some of the same chats together. You'll see me say it sometimes where I'll, I literally say, it. this is not a good slate. I don't feel good about it. And that, when I say that, it means that there's not really that many good spots where like I can differentiate myself. And sometimes I do well in those slates, and sometimes I don't. Um, but for me, I, I still think I have an edge on every single slate, even if it's just 1%, where I'm going to keep my action. And I put so much work in where, I, I, you know, maybe right sometimes, I, I'm going to keep my action regardless. And yes, there are slates like that where I do find myself a little closer to the field than I'd like to be. But um, it, it is what it is. Not every slate I'm going to find, like, the gem. You know, I'm obviously not perfect, you know. And, and some days I have more time than others. And and, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm one of the chess is okay team guys where I'm, I'm an eight hour work week guy, you know, sometimes they're in the eight, I don't maybe eight, uh, 12 hours a day, you know, sometimes I do. It's hard to find the gem sometimes. But, but, you, but, but you have to think, but you have to think that it, do you, 
Do you think that that's FOMO? Because I could see, to me, that uh, I've I've heard that from from other from other players, the, the FOMO of oh, yeah. which is what what I don't have of like, well, I know there's no like you can you can basically look at a slate and go, I don't think I have much of an edge on this slate, but and. I, it probably would be smarter if I lowered my volume today. But what happens if today's the one time, the time that I bink even with the small edge? And you don't want to have that FOMO of like, like, oh, had I put in 150 entries, oh, had I maxed out this contest, I actually would have, would have came out with you know a quarter of a million bucks. Yeah, I mean, there is, is to me, it's three parts. It's one's FOMO for sure. Two, I still have confidence that on my not great days, I can still make money. I still think I'm, I'm plus CV, whether it's true or not. Who knows? And three, I, I put a lot of work each day where I, I don't want to waste my work uh, and, and just cancel my entries after I put in many hours. And, and some cost fallacy there. That I mean, I'm, I, oh, I, oh, I understand exactly what you're saying. I'm just kind of kind of giving the counterpoint of like what you're saying is uh, it's not it's not optimal, but it doesn't mean that it's not profitable. Yes. I mean, it goes back to number two, right? No matter what, I still think I have an edge. And again, uh, I'm not playing every single slate. Again, I don't play like the showdown slates. I don't play the two game slates because I don't think I have edges there. But in any three game or more slate, if I have the time to put put in, I think I have an edge there. Right. Because you, you, you despise my style of play. <laughs> I, I despise cash game style. I, that, but I'm that not a cash cool game player. You think I'm a, I, I play GPP. I play more GPPs than I play cash games. Okay, so that is true. That is true, but I despise a lot of people's styles. How about that? <laughs> it's not. It's not just you. I despise anybody who uses projections as is everything. I'm. I'm an intuition guy. I know there's not many of us out there. Yeah, but I. But I, I'm. I'm still used, utilizing ownership and construction more than than projections. So for me, that's, also. That, that's all the same. That's all the right. same. But you don't I, like I, my. Ba- I thought you don't like my bankroll management style. Oh, well, I hate your bankroll management style. I, I think you would be maxing the the wildcat every week by now if you would be been a little more aggressive. Right. Well, I, I that the one quote that I I always remember. You did a stream on Twitch. And this was a long time ago, pretty three four years ago. That I agreed. I that I agreed with that. Uh, if you haven't had like a, a a massive downswing enough that you felt like quitting playing DFS like all, entirely and thinking that you're like awful. And that you just got lucky and what like if you haven't had that type of downswing, then you're not playing aggressively enough. It's 100. percent And and still to this day, I, there are times where I get uncomfortable because I've you know I'm in a downswing or like NFL is a good example for me. I think I'm good enough in NFL to win even at the high stakes, but I don't think I'm great at it. I think I'm I'm above average. But when I lose, I get a lot of doubts even in myself. I've been doing this for several years, by the way, and and I still get doubts like. Maybe I just don't know something and I'm missing something where I'm not as good as I think I am. And, and by the way, my edge is thin where like if I don't know something, then I'm in trouble. And, and, and luckily in basketball, I don't get those same things because I can figure out if something goes wrong in an NBA game, I can figure out pretty quickly what's, what, what went wrong. But like other sports, I still have those doubts all the time. But that's a sign of a good player. Because I, mean, yeah, I mean, we see yes. plenty of, of players that have won. That, you know, the first thing that you think is like, I mean, I know I figured it out and they're not going to listen to anything else. I mean, I mean, I know I come across as like some people call me condescendings or know-it-all or I'm just a blunt, I'm, I'm just a blunt New Yorker. That's just, I'm just blah, 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 blah. And I don't mind sharing everything that I know. So it's like, I know all this, this stuff and let me, let me, uh, the next thing you know, it's 12 minutes later. Uh, 
but I mean, I, I study previous slates and I, I look to get, there are things that I don't know. I don't think I know everything. The whole point is to study better players. I don't, and also I don't have to be the best. So it's like, okay, so I'm going to study players that are playing higher stakes, that are playing higher volume. And can I, can I accomplish my goals by learning more from them each and every day? And if my goal is X, well, how do, how do I maximize my path to X? Do you, do, do you think, especially in the, in the, in the higher stakes or higher volume that, especially for players that maybe we don't see anymore, right? So much in the lobby anymore that there's, there's a lot for, even for the smartest people, there's a lot, there's too much like, like. I don't want to say I need to be the best, but more of a comparison. Well, this guy's winning this and that guy's winning this. So, or because people email me and I go, I see you're playing X and Y and Z. Does that mean, do you, does that mean I have to do X and Y and Z? I go, absolutely not. So based on my skill level and the games that I play and everything that you're not going to learn anything from my contest selection. You may learn something from my lineups, but like, you don't have to, you know, if you want to play the quarter arcade for the rest and, and this is what you like doing and you just want to play it well, then like, don't, don't compare yourself to someone, you know, that's putting in $120,000 of volume on a Sunday. Like, do, do you think yeah. that there's a lot of that at the higher stakes and the higher volume, even from people that are like, are not like public figures? Cause I could see that being a, a weird thing of like, like it's, it, I mean, I've said it before on the podcast of like, yeah, let's say you, you play, you play the, the Thunderdome every day and then you're gone for a week. Like, you know, that because it's only a small ground of people that play the Thunderdome that everyone, everyone that's paying attention at least is going to think, Oh, that guy, that guy is on a downswing. Oh, that guy went, went broke, you know, like, and you just don't want people like thinking of you in that way. Do you, do, do you ever get those types of thoughts of like, People, people know who you are, Travis. And, you know, if, if I saw you, if I, if I pulled up results DB and I saw you weren't in an NBA contest for two weeks, like it could be that you're just, you're, you decided to fucking climb Mount Everest and you, and that was more important to you. But wouldn't you think in the back of the head, if I don't play for two weeks, people are going to think that, that I'm broke or I'm shit or I quit or something like that. And they're going to think less of me. So, gosh, there's, you had a lot of questions in there, and that a lot I of always questions do. there. Actually, I had like, I had like five different things I thought of that were good answers to because that now there's a lot of good questions in there, and I, I and hopefully I don't forget some because I like to revisit some of those. But um, the first thing I tell you is a story. I can't remember. I must have been at some sort of event for something, and uh, somebody came up to me. He's like, and we're talking like, oh, you're playing them, and they're like, yeah, do you play Fanduel NBA anymore? I was like, yeah, I've been maxing every day for like months now. And he's like, oh, I haven't seen you much. I was like. Yeah, I haven't done very well. Like it, it happens, right? It, 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 that's it, it's okay. It's okay. Me personally, I don't, I don't worry as much what other people think about me. Um, I, I have confidence in myself, especially in NBA. You will rarely see me lower my volume in NBA because I, 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 to me, for better or worse, again, this is one of the most dangerous things at DFS. By the way, is trying to figure out when you're losing, are you on a downswing because you've been playing bad or you've been running bad? Because there is a big difference, and I know if you ask. 100 people were on downswings, the majority would say they're running bad, which is not the case. And there are times where I've, I've been on many downswings before. I've been, I've ran bad before and I've, I've played horribly before. It, it goes both ways. And answering that as truthfully as you can is very difficult. 
is very difficult. But if you look at a lobby from 2016, the high stakes, and look at it now, you'd be surprised how many guys are not around anymore. You'd be like, oh, that guy, oh, that guy, oh, that guy. But it's out of sight, out of mind. I, a lot of these names, if you didn't tell me them, I would I, I would never remember them. Unless like Sahil or Kanye, the very top, top guys, there's been thousands of guys who've been high stakes regs at one point for, say, a month straight that are not around anymore. But I just, you just forget about them. You know, and I don't study players that often. So uh, I know you said you, you study players probably daily. I don't do that. So if a guy stops playing the high stakes, I won't notice. I don't worry about who I'm playing against in these games. I'll just play whoever. Well, you'll notice whoever, if they win a lot, because you'll notice who won. Yeah, for the most part. Sometimes I won't because I, I don't, again, if I'm not doing well on a certain night. You don't care who won at that point. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I really don't care. I really don't. I don't, I don't look who, I don't get FOMO by looking who wins. Um, so you're, you're telling me you don't true. study. That's not true. You're smart enough so, that. Right, well, you're smart enough that you, if you, if you have a bad day, isn't the first thing to do like you're trying like the hardest question in all of DFS? Are you playing bad or running bad? Like, isn't the first reaction to like having a bad, a really bad slate to go? Let let me let me find a couple of people that I respect and like were were they doing similar things to me? And if if they were also like, then you could say that you're running bad. But if you if you find you know five six guys that you that you respect their play enough, you may think that you're slightly better than right. But they respect enough yeah. and you go, wow, like like they all were, went this way and I was going this way. It's more likely, even though you in the back of your head, you're like, no, I know basketball. Maybe it's a way to like, okay, that's one par, par, mark on the checkboard of maybe I need to look a little bit into my process. Because if that starts happening often where, you know, 10 guys that you respect are doing something completely different than you, the more and more that happens, the more likely that they're right and you're wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, I spoke too quickly. I, what I meant to say was, I don't worry about as much as other people. I, I know a lot of people when I talk to them, they they say, "Oh, look how much he won." It's like it's not that big of a deal. And three days from now, like yesterday, you know, some of the big players won a lot. You know, we, a week from now, next next NFL, I won't even remember who won. It, it's not a big deal, right? But um, as for the process stuff, I do look a lot more at people. So when I'm winning, I won't look at all. I really, I really don't care. When I'm losing, I will look at, see, maybe this guy had this guy, you know, so-and-so. And there are some guys I will look at, and it's mainly some of the OG guys who I think are more intuitive-based than projection-based. Uh, so I will look sometimes, but it's it's pretty rare. And it is, to me, it's pretty difficult to, to try to figure out why a guy had a certain guy in their lamps that, that I may not have. Maybe it's a construction thing. Maybe it's a pure projection thing. It's, it, it, it can be kind of difficult to figure out exactly what they're thinking. Sometimes I'll see, like, Oh, they have this guy. I look like, oh man, I must, I missed that. I missed that. But most of the time, it's hard to figure out what these guys are doing that I didn't see before. Do, do you remember from two years ago, uh, Mock Lovins, Lonnie Walker? Do you, re- do you remember yes. that slate? Yeah. Like to, to yeah, me, that that's was... the, that's the classic example of a guy that's been seeing zero minutes that just like, like no one has except for him in 37% of his lineups. And that was the yeah. day where he just walked into like 40 points like, so I think he said he screwed up on that day, though. I think right, that was, right. That's what, I, that's what I was trying to tell so, people. Like, they think like he people were were in the RG Discord were like, does he have like a phone to the locker room or something? It's like DFS players don't have that type of shit. I said, I'm no. assuming he screwed something up in his projections. Uh, yep. And it was one of those days where we didn't know what the Spurs were going to do, but it probably wasn't going to be Lonnie Walker. And it just no, happened it to be Lonnie Walker. And he had an extra comma in a CSV that those minutes were actually supposed to go to someone else and they went to him. Yeah, no, that's what happens. And, and 
when I look back at people's lineups and the guys I, I care about, I don't look at their what they played for chalk. If a guy is going 100% on chalk, I mean, or 0% chalk, it doesn't mean anything. It probably means either he didn't, you know, do anything on ownership if he's 100%, or if he's 0%, he's just like fading purely because of ownership. That means nothing to me. Ownership style. To me, I look at what guys have for like the 5% or 10% under guys. If someone has a mega overshare on any of those guys, that interests me a lot because that means that this guy found something that maybe he saw that nobody else sees. And I think that's how you make your money in DFS. You find something that nobody else sees in these low owned guys. Because while while ownership is correlated pretty well with uh, projection value, it's not perfect. And that's how that's personally how I make money in NBA DFS. I find discrepancies between what the industry thinks and what I think. Two, two more things. Uh, one, late swap. Obviously, mm-hmm. NBA is a pain in the ass to play TFS. Yeah. Because yeah, you, pr- you pretty much have to be on the, your computer until the last game locks. Uh, because the edge, you're giving up too much edge by not late swapping. Are you, there's two styles of late swap. There's late swapping because news has changed projections. So we get those, uh, we're not sure if Kawhi is going to play. And then it turns out he's out, right? Like those types of things where now you're jamming in other guys. Uh, in those cases, but I'm, I'm gonna, this is a multi-part question. In those cases, uh, how do, do you, are you more likely to react by just by jamming? Like, for instance, like in those cases, a lot of times, like the games, half the games are over already or locked. And it's like, this thing happens. It's like, they're never going to be as high owned as they should be. Uh, let me just, jam, like, basically re, you know, I use like entries manager in lineup HQ and whatever optimizer of choice that you have, typically as a late swap optimizer type of thing, that you just go, give me as much of this guy as possible, no matter what. And just like, whatever it needs to do, get him in as many lineups as possible. That's like the blunt way of doing it. But there's also a, two, a second type of late swap where no news has happened, but you're swapping lineups, like like your high scoring lineups currently that may have a, a contrarian piece, you're more likely to get optimized for projection value. So you're blocking people. Typically you're playing higher own players now. And the, and, the, and the lineups that are at the bottom, you're basically removing chalk and putting in garbage, you know, the low projected low own players just to get up to like the min catch line. I can understand from a, an efficiency standpoint, a lot of people not doing that one. Like I say, it's worth, it's, there's worth money getting lineups. Even if you could get some of those lineups 2% of the time into the min cash zone that adds up over the course of a year. But I can understand definitely paying attention to the top ones where, you know, you got a lineup in fifth place in a large field GPP and, you know, it's a one, simply put, it's a one V one and it's a 40% owned guy and a 10% owned guy at, you know, similarly projected or whatever. You just like, I'm just going to swap this and leave 600 on the table and, and just block there. So how mm-hmm. how and overall, what is your 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 late swap kind of you know process starting? You know, it locks at you know four o'clock your time or something. Uh, at least you get your nights right because typically the NBA slate yeah. like you could probably go out yeah. at like nine thirty or something your time. But like what 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 do you, what do you do primarily for late? But uh, I'm more I'm a little bit of one and a little bit of, of of a third version too. I watch the games. I watch a lot of games. So. Uh, I don't have time to number two. It doesn't mean anything to me. For me, if, if you if your lineup's not doing good at the bottom, and it's early enough where there's enough games where things could change, 
I think it's hard to determine if your lines at the bottom are actually bad or they just, again, usually lines at the bottom, there's say half your guys are gone. You still have four guys left. Things can change a lot. And again, because my style is not ownership based, it's more projection based, but I get naturally contrarian. I don't have to worry about that stuff as much because I naturally have lower owned guys than everybody else. Uh, I will swap on news, but I won't over swap, like Kylie said. So most of my action is going to be high stakes and on multiple sites. So I need to be careful with how I use my time, especially when time is crunched. Uh, I, I'm not going to lock a guy just because something crazy came out. I'll put what I think is projections and then go from there. Sometimes he'll come up 100% just because it's all of a sudden a smash play. But I won't just, I won't lock, I would never lock a guy. Right. Well, I'm not, I'm right. not necessarily talking about locking, but, but like you said, not ca- like it's not locking. It's more like not capping. It's more like, yeah, I don't cap. change and just like what it, like basically you're running it over again, but not, but you're not going through going, well, I only want 40% of them. And I only mm-hmm. like, you're just mm-hmm. like, something's happened at 845 Eastern that changes some 10 o'clock game. And it's like, even though there's a value play in the nine o'clock game, now, because we had that news, most likely I'm not going to get much of that guy anymore because, because basically I'm telling I'm telling the optimizer to just overvalue projection and just just go go like that. And I I obviously when I do the late swap stuff, if I'm not taking ownership into account there anyway because I don't have to I don't have to efficiency wise, especially in NBA, I don't have the time to adjust ownership. I mean I because I would have to do that manually. The sites don't do it, and I also I also manually change ownership myself before the slate anyway. So I can't go in and go, well, this 22% owned guy is now going to be 16% owned because this guy, like, I don't have an, yeah. like, like you said in NBA, like NFL, you could do it. I mean, NFL, I do it all the time because you know, news comes out at Saturday afternoon. It's like, hell yeah. dude, I line up lock uh, 20, you know, 22 hours from now. I, I have plenty of time. NBA, we get the four minutes before lock, before minutes before a game locks. Like, like, dude, like, I'm rushing just to get a goddamn CSV uploaded, and you're looking at your clock on your computer at, you know, at 8.59, and you see that little thing spinning on FanDuel or something, like, and you're just hoping that it that it gets in before the thing locks. It's brutal. It's brutal. And, and, and because of the way I play, it helps for that stuff. Like, again, my, my build is essentially a cash build with some GPP tweaks, just, because, just so to make it a little more... Uh, more about upside rather than like the average number. So that helps in that, re- that regard. And ownership is, as you said, it's, it's difficult for a site, uh, for whatever site you're using ownership off of to change everything based off one set of news. And one set of news an NBA can change the whole landscape. All of a sudden, you know, if three bucks are out, all of a sudden you're probably gonna have a lot of cheap bucks that are good value, which is gonna change all the cheap value, all the cheap, uh, cheap uh, so I say value now, all the cheap, uh, Guys now that had high ownerships are going to be probably own nothing now because all the bucks are going to take their spot. It's just very difficult. And that leads everybody who's using ownership into the same exact spots because they all have this, the same number. And that's my, my, my concern using ownership, and I don't use it in NBA at all. I just use it to look at, not to use, is that everybody uses the same one. So if, if one ownership is off, so say Jason Tatum is, is a smash play, but the ownership says, oh, he's only 10% owned. That's crazy. Everybody's like, you got to play him. All of a sudden, he shows up at 35, 40%. It's crazy. And right, because that, I play high stakes as well, the people are a lot more sophisticated. And because of that, like the late swapping is not as important as the small stakes thing. Because again, small stakes guys go do whatever. But at high stakes, you're rarely going to find somebody who doesn't swap, especially a player out who gets injured or who's out for whatever reason. People are very quick. 
and, and sophisticated. Right. But with the ownership stuff, I mean, that you're describing what I do. I mean, like, like in the same way that you know the, you know, the nuances of the NBA and you're tweaking stuff like that, I'm doing that with the ownership based approach. Like, that's why when, you know, someone, someone will say to me in like a, a chat somewhere, for any sport, right? And and oh, so and so is only going to be eight percent owned. That must be a great play. And I go, no, he's going to be sixteen percent owned. And yeah. I, and it go, no, but yeah. it says here eight percent. I said, said yeah. What, first off, that's wrong because this other guy that's projecting higher ownership at twenty two percent owned is only going to be like fourteen percent owned. So that ownership has to go somewhere. So it's going to go in based on the the way construction works. Cheap guys, expensive guys. You know the balance builds. Knowing all the type of lineup construction types, it has to go somewhere. It's going to go there. I've heard, I've been listening to, I listened to three shows today because I leave them on throughout the course of the day. This guy was mentioned as like the low owned, if they're, because that site has, has the guy at 10% owned and everyone's looking going, if he's only going to be 10% owned, why aren't I playing him? It's like, how much is that going to, so I have to change. So like when I'm building my lineups, like I have to judge, do I have a process no. like a mat, a, 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 no, I, it's, purely into just like you're intuitive when it comes to NBA, I'm intuitive when it comes to ownership, but I, that's what I've concentrated on for six years of playing DFS. So it's not something that I could necessarily, just like you couldn't teach me the nuances of certain teams or something just straight out of the, without like that. I can't teach like, like, no, that's, I think I'm going to judge ownership. I think my internal intuitive ownership, which I'm just tweaking from the current around the industry has a higher R squared value than any industry projections. And that's where my edge, that's like, like I said, we're, we're two different styles of players. So like what you don't find value in, I find immense value in because if I didn't, I, I wouldn't be able to beat someone like you. Right. Yeah. Had, I mean, it, in the end, I, I do respect other people's styles and, you know, I respect your style and stuff. It just, to me, it's not, I'm not, I would never think it's bad or anything because it obviously works for you, but for me, it's not worth it. I'm already putting so much time into my style. My ta- my style takes so much time as is that if I'm not putting the full amount of time into it, I'm just going to lose, I think, more value than learning a different style and adding that to what I do. Right. Well, as long as you're profitable, that's all that matters. I mean, like, at the end of the day, you wouldn't you wouldn't have to care about that. Would, would it get to the point, maybe it's, Travis, it's 2026. And you're like, wow, like the past two seasons, like, seems like there's no edge or anything like that. I mean, you you would have to either stop playing or maybe consider more of that type of stuff if there, if that even exists. Oh yeah. I, I tweaked my NBA style year to year. Uh, every year I find new things and people are getting better and, and, and I haven't kept the same style. It's been similar ish over the last three, four years, but I, I definitely tweak things, but it's more so in other sports where I'm more mediocre, where I, I need to tweak stuff constantly. Even in NFL, I've tweaked so many things week to week this year. I've seen some things that work, some things that don't work, but it's so so much noise that it's hard to kind of figure out, especially with, with and, and we're not winning big. It's hard to develop confidence in something, even if it might be right. You might be wrong three weeks in a row, and you might have the best system in the world, but it's hard to build that confidence. But in NBA, um, if it comes to that, in NBA, that's probably my time to retire. Like I, if if I'm at the point where I'm not beating high stakes at an okay clip, then I'm I'm okay just riding off and, and moving on to something else. You know, I've I've been this too long anyway. Uh, lastly, FanDuel, they're adding multi-positional eligibility. Uh, DraftKings yeah. is staying the same way. I know that there was one preseason slate, but they didn't have it. And, and that was just a mistake. I, I got, well, I got word that that was just, you know, they're fucking around in the preseason, but FanDuel, the main difference between the two sites has been 
uh, other than they switched with the late swap and stuff. You know, one didn't have it, one did, and then whatever. Now they both have late swap. Uh, the main difference between the two sites, uh, DraftKings tends to have tighter pricing. FanDuel is yep. much softer. Uh, but yep. FanDuel had strict positional limits. Two point guards, two shooting guards, two small forwards, yep. two power forwards, one center, and no utility positions. Correct. Just like DraftKings had multi-positional eligibility as well as forward utility, no. guard utility, and anything utility. No. So on yep. DraftKings, even though the pricing was tighter, you could make a lot more different combinations of lineups. While on FanDuel, it was a lot of times where you gotta play a second small forward. I mean, like, it's one of those slates where where you see that, uh, you know, uh, LeBron is not even, pro- like, va- from a projection value point per dollar standpoint, is not even that good compared to, like, some of the other studs. But since he fills a small forward spot, and small yeah. forward is such a bad position on the slate... Yeah. Like that's the proper way to uh, chalk to, to b- build the highest projection value lineup with multi-positional eligibility. Now, uh, are are you are you changing your approach? Because in the lower stakes, that more that I play, uh, and or cash games especially, like all that does multi-positional eligibility is great for sharper players because it just allows worse players to make more mistakes. Because like I could, in cash games I could fit in the nine the, whatever whatever the nine best projected you know optimal whatever, and there may be players in my fifty fifties or head to heads that are like no I'm gonna play I'm gonna go stars and scrubs, and they shouldn't they should be going balanced because it's not the same as as last year. Yeah, so you actually made a good uh, you didn't realize you made a good example of this with LeBron, so I'm. I think it reduces, I think it reduces the skill with multi-positions actually, because last two season when people would have to go a guy like, a guy like, uh, sorry about that, uh, a guy like LeBron James, because they wanted to, they need to fit a guy and, and because the, the projection value is so bad, it's like, hey, let's spend the money there and we can get the more cheaper value plays somewhere else because there's nothing at small board. Well, now that's not going to be such an issue for everybody because there's more players for each position, right? Uh, I think it's worse for me. I know last year there was a lot of days where power forward was a weak position and very difficult to fill. And people would fill it with such bad plays. And uh, and that, I think that's a big, actually, edge on FanDuel. Uh, I think that the guys are more projection-driven uh, would make mistakes without the, the multi-position uh, eligibility a lot. Yeah, and but, that's, but now, you're, making, you're making the point for me. Projection, well, first, small things, right? Right, right. So, right, so, right. So, so projections-based people like yourself would be benefit. Would be more beneficial for MPE in in a situation so, where people are making more mistakes. So, I, I differentiate my projection-based stuff versus like more of other projections because my stuff, again, my stuff is not like the industry. I'm considering more like industry projections would lead you into power forwards. Cheap. I remember a lot of cheap power forwards, like. Uh, Nerlens Noel, I think, last year got played in weird spots as chalk uh, multiple times. And now those people are not going to have Nerlens Noel power for it. They're going to have some guy with multiple position eligibility that's going to fill their lineup a lot better. And that hurts someone like me. I think someone who has a more of an ownership style, now that guy's going to be higher owned with, with, with multiple position eligibility, I think a more of an ownership style uh, based approach is going to do better because guys are going to be higher owned now. And I think the, the people who play more ownership style 
uh, will be able to, to have an edge because of that. But it doesn't help someone like me because people are not playing Nerlens Noel's chalk at power forward anymore. I, I think we're 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 saying the opposite things depending on where you're playing. Okay. Like I, from your, it's it's weird to say. It it should be the opposite, but it's it's the opposite in the games that I play. But you're correct in the games that you play. So like when you're playing against the field, and you're playing the higher stakes. So let's say you're playing yeah. the the monster, whatever the fifteen hundred dollar monster or something on FanDuel. You're you're most likely going to be playing against people that are either do what you do, use projections around the industry. Like you're not, you're not dealing with, th- with that many casuals, right? No, you may get some dead lineups. You may get some, you know, rich guy or something that wants to put in a lot. You sure. may, it, people that step, they want a GPP and now they think they could play the monster. You get those people, right? Yeah. But for the most part, yeah. you're still getting observant players that, like you said, your, your advantage is that you're going to play against uh, someone a couple of people that all they do is aggregate projections and spit out a lineup. You think you have a, an edge on them because yes. they're going to, and with multiple possession eligibility, they're more likely, you're more likely to predict their lineups because you could just fit the nine best projected, you know, like you just the optimal lineup in there. But in the low stakes, let me tell you, like if you, I mean, in the $4 and 44 cent 50,000 entry contest, like, dude, you find lineups. I mean, dude, you find lineups that you just look at and go, what, what are people, I mean, just what are people doing? I'm not talking about good players. I'm just talking, they're yeah. just more bad players overall. And in like 50 yeah. fifties, like one of my, my, my entertainment value that I do every night is uh look at the bottom of 50 fifties and just see what lineups have been played. And you, you'll play, I'll play the hundred man 50 fifties on FanDuel. Uh, and, Seriously, they'll be, I mean, sometimes they end up winning. Sometimes you look at the top lineup and go, wow, how the hell did you play that? That lineup was 25 points projected lower than anything. Good thing this guy got injured in everyone's lineup because you wouldn't have won otherwise. But you look on the bottom and you see, I mean, Travis, I mean, you see abominations. I mean, like. I believe it. Right. But at the high stakes, you won't, you won't really see abominations. So like MPE, like the fact that I believe on FanDuel, 20 plus percent of the field are playing lineups that have a very low EV enough so that it pays for the rake. LMP. And that's, that's currently with the positional constraints as it is. So now you're adding, giving them more choices to make mistakes to fit in. Oh, 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 now I could fit. I could fit in LeBron, Kawhi and Giannis into my lineup and have four, three K players that are going to get eight minutes. Dude, I see those. I mean, those are lineups that are being played. So, like, I agree with you in the high stakes, but I still think for most people that would be listening to this, that aren't playing the $1,500 monster, that aren't playing, you know, three-figure, four-figure, five-figure level contests, that MPE benefits more, like, more of a... If you're going to use an aggregate projection set, like, and you have some amount of construction and ownership type type of stuff that... You're more likely to be profitable in the low stakes with MPE more than you would last year without it. So that actually, off the top of my head, I haven't thought of this extensively, but based on what you said, by the way, when I say projection people, I should have said aggregators. That's a much better way to put it. Okay. That's a way way better. The guys are aggregators. Those guys are very high stakes players who have been successful for a long time who are aggregators. So it does work for some people. Uh, But I think MPE helps aggregators, kind of like what you said, 
I think it hurts me because the aggregators, I, I, I think I make decent money at the aggregators because uh, they all play the same way and I play different. And I think it also does, I don't think it hurts the casual player as much as you would think. Because again, your example was, they could play, oh, let's play LeBron, let's play Giannis, let's play, I can't remember the third guy, it was another big well, whoever, guy, I'm just whoever, I'm just naming a three-stud lineup that would be horrible on FanDuel. But but they could do the same thing still, but before they could play LeBron, Giannis, and instead of the third small forward, whatever, they could play some bad point guard value. It's, it's the same concept. And they get, they get uh, a lot of these guys build their lineup, they hand build it, right? So they build seven, eight guys, and then the last position, they end up with, with and this is how the, 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 um, the, um, the, the, the optimizers also build, right? They, they build the same way. They, uh, well, they don't build the same way. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. But they, they build ways where like a Nerlens Noel will fit into a really good lineup, and that's that's the top projected lineup. They, he fits, right? It's the same concept with hand builders, but obviously they're a lot worse at it than, than an optimizer. But uh, I think either way, you have one or two positions left for these hand builders. They pick their favorite players first, and with more options now with multi-position eligibility, they're going to have an easier time picking. No, but Where they're not going to pick they're... the right. But they're not going to pick the right ones, Travis. We see on draft. Let's go to DraftKings. So think of okay. DraftKings more of a cash style, cash lineup. If if we have one of those slates, right? When you know this guy's out, this guy's out. You know we have some of the, we have some slates where, wow, there's four guys at guard that are good value, but like, how am I going to fill up my guard, uh, a flex spot? in my utility spot when there's two obvious center values, right? Because center on DraftKings, you you can only play two at most, yes. right? And it's unless they have the PFC designation. So now you're sitting there going, I know I, if, I, if I could play these, these six guys together, I would, but positionally, even with multi-positional eligibility, like I have to choose between them. Sure. Like on, we've never had that on FanDuel though. So people that have been playing, like you're gonna, we're able to, like those situations. The, all all the Bucks are out, all the Pelicans are out. I mean, like one of those things. Like, dude, I go on Fanduel and like my half my lineup is one team and half my lineup is the other team, and 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 a stud or something like like that becomes like that becomes the collusion chat lineup, right? It becomes one of those lineups where you go on Twitter later in that day or go on Reddit or Facebook groups, and apparently uh, seventy eight people are colluding against you, and. Yeah, the 22 other people in that 50, 50, I mean, like, you'll take a look at the lineups and it's like, there are people that only played two of those six guys. There are only people that played three of those six guys. It's like, dude, you have to play all six. Now, in FanDuel, when that happens, they're not all six going to fit into your lineup because of positional constraints. But now on FanDuel, they're more likely to, just like it is on DraftKings. And I think that's the main difference in cash games on DraftKings, why uh, DraftKings are much harder cash games because... The positions of the the best projectable value don't matter as much because I'm probably able to get all five in. Now we're just having a three v three on the the less which stud and which five k player did you play? Did you play the fifty two hundred? Like that's on DraftKings, but on Fanduel we they people that are played on Fanduel have never experienced that. That when when there's you have to play two small forwards and the. Yeah, and you have to play a 5K small forward, and there's six of them. They're all bad, and they all project for about the same amount of points. Like, the bad player could pick any of them. Like, what advantage do we have in doing that? So, now you're not forcing a good player to have to do. Like, dude, I can play anyone anywhere now, so good luck running me down with my highest projected lineup. 
Yeah, so I think what it comes down to, you know, going back to like the one one lap player in your lineup thing, I think instead of now where the guys have like six options to choose from and they're all bad probably because they, they're like, they built their eight guys like, you know, I'm going to build one more guy and they're looking at the options like, these are all not good, but I like my other eight guys. But now they're going to have 12 options and there might be one good option out of the 12, but they have a chance to find the, the good one now, the more obvious one. Yeah, but they're more like, but they're more likely to not find them. That's the whole point. But they didn't have any good options before. Yeah, but we didn't have I any think, good options before, Travis. That's the point. That was good for me. That was good for me though, because because you you fit you, you, these these aggregator guys would 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 fit their their eight guys in, and then their offense would spit the last guy out because kind of like the LeBron, right? LeBron would be the last guy in because you get such good value otherwise. That's not the case anymore. All these aggregators now are going to be better because there's so many more guys you can throw in. Your lineups are going to be so much more balanced than before. You're not going to have that bad guy in that you need to fit the the, the very good chalk lineup. And that's going to hurt someone like me. Right, but I, at your stakes, because I'm not talking about, like, here are the levels of players that we're talking about. Like, I we're, I think you understand what I'm saying. That yeah, yeah, players, yeah. We, we, we completely agree, by the way. Right, we completely we're, we're agree. We're talking about different stakes. We're talking about different stakes. Right, but the three levels that, that we're talking about are you, you're, an, I would call an originator, right? You're making your own projections. Then there are the aggregators, which are basically taking projections from around the industry and averaging yeah. them out and using to, that to build their lineups. And then there's people that use just one projection source. I just use yeah. Roto Grinders or ETR projections. And then there's right. like the 20, 25% of the, the the people that play more so on FanDuel than on DraftKings that don't use any projections. I don't now, know those people. I don't, I don't, I don't need, I don't, I don't know these guys. Yeah, but they're at the low stake. That's what I'm saying. They're at I the know, lower, lower and mid stakes. I, I, I have, I have real life buddies who they'll ask me stuff here and there and, and I, I hear it all. Don't worry. Right. But, but basically, that's the difference between what we're talking about is that yeah. it'll help the aggregators. So it hurts you at the high stakes, but it helps if I'm an aggregator. So obviously it helps me because I can beat the, the lower, the 50-50 people in the $2.50-50s that I don't know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, your, your style is built to beat the small stakes guys and, and crush those guys and make your good money. Which you despise. You hate it. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. Des- I don't despise having a style that beats people. I, I despise... The people who don't raise their stakes when they clearly should. So I should be raising my stakes? I think you should have given yourself a try by now. A very serious try. Maybe you would have taken a dent and, and taken a beating initially. Maybe you would have not. Maybe you'd be a high stakes guy. I don't know. You just what, don't, high stakes know in what way? The high stakes like the Wildcat high stakes? Like the sure. or the single entry stuff? Yeah, no. The, the high, like the, the multi-entry high stakes. Oh, what, to play like the 777 or something? The 444? Maybe it'd be there. Maybe you'd be, you just don't know though. I don't. You're right. I don't. You won't know because you're, you don't give yourself a chance. I don't. I don't. I know. Like it's. But I, it's not like wait, I don't play volume. Be, by the way. What? And the longer you wait, the harder it's going to be. Who says I need to do it at all? You, you don't. You don't. But it, it, it obviously obviously doesn't work out for some people. We know. I mean, it, if I saw certain names, like oh, this guy took a shot, it didn't work, and probably spiraled for him. But it works for other people. It worked for me. Well, it worked for you, but I mean, like, I, I, I give the example I, I did on Super Stupid Saturday that, like, I dep- like if you told me that I'd play DFS for, for 10 years and make a million dollars, like, does it matter if I did it by winning the Millie Maker or did it by grinding out cash games? or Like, did the methodology behind doing that, like, would oh, the, the question matters. is, would I be happy with that result? And if my answer is yes, then, then you may okay, think, but- like, no, you should have $15 million after, like... Then what does it really matter? Well, I mean, I guess this is kind of a different example, and and uh, 
I, I do want to wrap this up eventually because I am about to eat food. But uh, for your example, like it, it, to me, it does matter how you win your money. It does because again, if it's all if it's all a million makers, then maybe it's more lucky. I'd rather, personally, I'd rather, if I could make ca- play cash games, and make my my same money. I would. I would love to do that. But you can't. But that's just not. We both know the best that you style. can't. Right. Yeah. So it leads to a more uh, swingy roller coaster kind of emotional style. Rather than cash games being more smooth. I mean, again, I used to be a cash game player. It was a lot simpler back then. It was nicer. But at the same time, this is more lucrative. And that's why I switched full time because this is just way more lucrative. And it may not be the case as much now, but uh, GPs are still the clear, better play for ROI, especially for the, the creative player. And and I, I personally, it takes a lot more time, of course, to be a GP player than cash player, but I enjoy the more creative side. But I'm, I'm, I'm the same way, but just not... I still, it still comes down to the overall theme of the podcast with me of, I, I, I'm, I was the Joey Kanish for, for poker also. Like I want to find the the worst players. So like, just as I don't, I don't, I don't, if I see a table with six good players and like, no, I'll, I, there's another table over here with people that, you know, are, you know, splashing the pot with seven, three offsuit and like, like, so I'll sit here. Yeah, but what you could, yeah, you're playing 1530. You could play, you could probably beat the 86, 160 game. I go, I know, but I'm my, and maybe get a slightly higher hourly rate. But like, dude, I, this 1530 game, I could play for the next 10 years and not, and not have to do anything else. It's like, well, Trust, I get it. Don't you want a fancy I, I house? It's like, no, I don't need I, a fancy I get house. it. I, when I was 21, 20, 1921, when I was playing poker, I, I played mid stakes and I was comfortable there. Could I have been better potentially? Did I work on my game? No, I was comfortable just hanging out there and doing my thing, making my money and, and moving on. But, you know, I, I, I guess I, I, as my DFS plays grew and I saw myself getting better, I wanted to challenge myself by playing higher stakes. And because of that also, and, and, and you're right, maybe short-term it, it is definitely more, definitely more stressful and maybe short-term it hurt me a little bit because I lost initially, but it made me such a better player because the losing, brought my competitive side it made me think of things in different ways it made me put more time to take more seriously and because of that i am where i am now right and i and me i i view it more of i think the way that i could expand is more about playing more sites and more slates than playing higher stakes so like for for me like an nb like nba last season was the first time i played on three sites simultaneously yeah so it's like yeah, i'd rather that, do that that's why like, improve your play that too what yeah. That's I mean that's another way to improve your play, right? There's it's not just about improving your skill in a certain sport. It's also about increasing your 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 money in other ways. Maybe you're finding better spots, and that's that's fine too. Right. So like on certain sites, maybe on certain slates, I play more cash. I play more GPP on this side. I play more the same for NFL, same for MLB. Like MLB, I was going, I was playing both. Typically, I would play MLB only on DraftKings, and then it's like let me play on FanDuel because I, I don't necessarily prefer the four. Four man stacks on the one pitcher. I'd rather have m- m- more options. I like the two pitcher sites, but like that four four dollar contest, I was starting. I was starting to play that, and it's like I barely put in any work, and I was maxing one fifty and still getting good results. And I'm like, I I need to put more time now. And then I started to put more time into it, and I ended up with a ton of steak knives last season. <laughs> Way too many steak yeah. knives, but Imagine I, I look at more time. Right. Well, that's what I'm spending more. Right. Exactly. And maybe I'm, those steak knives turn into some, some, you know, some, some China sets and, and some, some nice stuff. Right. Um, but that's how, but that's how I tell, like, I see, like, let me, let me try, try this out. Let me do more things at once and then see what the results look like. And when I see that I'm getting top 1% finishes 
way higher than than above expectation. It may just be unlucky or whatever, but there's like, no, no, now, now I'm actually focusing that. I stopped playing GPPs on DraftKings just to focus on FanDuel. Because it's like there has to be there has to be a reason why I'm getting higher results on FanDuel than on DraftKings. And a lot of truthfully, Travis, a lot of times it comes down to FanDuel just has weaker players. Yeah. That's true. No, that's very true. I agree with that. So Travis, Petty, Petty Theft, 89. You're not you're never gonna do another Twitch stream again, right? No, I won't say no to that. I actually enjoy doing it. It's just, again, I, I do think that I have edges that not many people possess because I play more unique. And I'd hate to give my edge away and uh, be one of those guys who's in the grave now, DFS grave. I give away my edge, just no one does it. No, I think 95% of I'm no, telling okay. you, you can tell people till you're blue in the face and people will still not do exactly what it is that, that you do. I... I I know if I said some of the things I know, it would definitely give some edge away and it would hurt me a lot more than what I'd make uh, doing doing Twitch. Okay, so that? so 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 basically in this entire uh, hour and, and a half episode or whatever, uh, you didn't give away any of your edge? Uh, not any of my big, big stuff. Absolutely not. Right, okay. But for, for, for the player that is playing lower stakes... Oh, yeah, you coming from there, got, got some good stuff. Right, got some good stuff, okay. You could, yeah, you could. So people can follow you. Petty Theft 89 on Twitter, even though you barely ever tweet. Right. I'm not even sure what my Twitter is. It's either Petty Theft 89 or Petty Theft. It's Petty, petty Theft, actually. Petty Theft. But you're Petty Theft 89. Yeah. You will most likely, if you're playing on FanDuel or DraftKings, seem uh seem above you in the in the on the leaderboard in, well, in hopefully, eight, hopefully this year. Hopefully this year. So uh yeah. so thanks, thanks for taking the time for coming on. Of course, Jordan. Uh and as always, you could always pick up uh, the Theory of Daily Fantasy Sports 15-hour audio DFS masterclass at theoryofdfs.com.